This evening I want to uh, talk about equanimity and its uh, qualities as one of the Brahma-vihara, as a manifestation of the awakened heart. And first, uh, a very succinct account of equanimity from uh, Nyanaponika Tara, who was uh, a German-born monk who wrote some uh, very influential early books on meditation. Some of you may know The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And he wrote one of the, the sweetest essays on the Brahma-vihara, which is called The Four Sublime States, which is like 15 pages, and you can get it at the Access to Insight website. It's a wonderful essay. Equanimity, he says, is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states, or the Brahma-vihara. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of metta, compassion, and sympathetic joy, or that it leaves them behind. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully just as they fully pervade perfect equanimity. So what we'll be exploring are different ways that uh, mature equanimity can be understood in relation to these other three qualities we've looked at, metta, compassion, and joy. And I thought, first of all, I'd uh, show you one way to develop the Brahma-vihara. These, these were sent to me by a retreatant uh, from uh, the winter solstice retreat. And these are uh, Brahma Vihara activator number one. Supports loving kindness production. I'll read the, the fine print. You know, there's also one that he sent called Maximum Strength No Dukkha. Fast acting reduces suffering. So, for the Brahma-vihara, um, this is for metta, loving-kindness, active ingredient is love. Supports production of affection and care for oneself and others. Store at room temperature. Warnings. Careful of selfish affection, near enemy, or painful ill will, far enemy, be wary of hard romantic type of love, and love that includes extreme attachment or controlling feelings. A pregnant or breastfeeding esque meditation professional before use. <laughs> Adults and children over 12 years of age and over take three beans 10 minutes before meditation, not to exceed 15 beans in 24 hours. <laughs> Indirect ingredients, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So. Uh, I don't know if he has a business with these, but maybe we can have the information out at the end of the retreat. It's from uh, Jorge Rojas, who, uh, and I'll, maybe I'll leave them out. You can check out No Duca as well. So there's, there's an interesting way, again, uh, whatever the properties of these uh, loving-kindness aids, there is uh, a very important way that we can look at equanimity and see equanimity in relationship to the other three. And like I offered last night, there are ways that we can see how each of the previous three open up to equanimity as this balance of mind. It's really the ability to be with experience increasingly with anything that occurs in experience with a quality of balance, especially. There are other qualities as well. And so, for example, there's, there's a way that as metta opens up to all beings, there's a way that the metta has a quality of balance and impartiality with all beings that really points towards a kind of balance and equanimity we're not partial. We don't offer kindness to some and not to others. 
or there's a way with compassion as we are with um, as we are with distress or difficulty the compassion increasingly is connected with the balance to be in those situations without being reactive without getting consumed and similarly there's a way in which uh, joy as it develops can lead to a certain kind of serenity and peace and uh, even concentration which is very linked with equanimity that someone who has a lot of joy will have a certain degree of serenity when we have that inner joy we can keep that no matter what's happening increasingly and again in that in that teaching that i referred to last night called the teaching of transcendental or liberative dependent origination or dependent arising where there's a a mapping of how these positive qualities develop there is a sequence which in which joy <coughs> rapture delight open up further to concentration which then in time opens up to equanimity and so there are ways that we can feel that increasing balance as we work with the first three of the of the practices and yet there's something that can be challenging about making the connections between all four of these qualities because in many ways the first three qualities are more obviously qualities of the heart and in in many ways equanimity especially brings in the wisdom dimension and so we can ask how do we connect the awakened heart with the wisdom with wisdom and there can seem to be different reasons why this is actually hard to contemplate why it's hard to bring together uh the kind heart and wisdom first of all there are cultural tendencies and pressures to split the mind and heart together to split uh our clear seeing from the kind heart you know in western culture for several thousand years many of the prevailing models and you can see this if you go back to the greek philosophers many of the prevailing models have split off what's sometimes called reason from the heart and especially from the body actually and this has been somewhat intensified in the last few hundred years we have uh uh often a very severe split between the mind or reason and the emotions and the kind heart it's been very pronounced at times you can see it in many ways uh um can see it in in the way that some notions of science have as their root the cutting off of all emotion and so the the model seems to be that of a uh emotionally uh disconnected clear seer i guess the model would be dr spock right <laughs> that's how it's sort of personified in popular culture but it would be the lab coat technician who has separated out usually his knowledge from his heart his body and his values and that's a very strong cultural model isn't it we have that in many ways and there's a disconnection between the mind and the heart and the body and there's a very strong pressure and of course there've been people who have questioned that a lot of the poets and uh you know, a lot of uh feminist philosophers have questioned this and many other people have questioned those splits you know the the french philosopher pascal said the heart has its reasons of which reason knows not maybe you, maybe some of you remember that 
And so there's this very powerful split that we are in a way predisposed to continue because of our conditioning. And that's part of our background for, for why it's actually challenging at times to connect our, our wisdom practice and our heart practices. And there also are apparent splits within Buddhist practice. Sometimes it seems that the uh, vocabulary, the way of understanding things, and even the practices of these heart practices that we've been doing, on the one hand, and our mindfulness and our wisdom practice can seem very, very different. And I know some of you have talked about these in the one-on-ones. You know, when we, uh, when we look at the heart practices, they seem very personal. You know, and they seem to be about relations with particular persons. And we use the language of this person and that person. And we wish well for them. Whereas sometimes it seems like the language of mindfulness and wisdom seems to point towards seeing things impersonally, right? The model of not-self or the model of breaking down the constructs of personality and seeing things increasingly as a flow of moments of form or perception or consciousness or this is I'm referring to the model of the aggregates or the model of the different components of experience and it's one of the ways that we're invited actually to see beyond the sense of self and so you could say that doesn't it seem like these heart practices are based on a sense of self and the wisdom practice aren't what's going on or how, do the, how does this all come together? Or it can, it can look like uh, the practices of metta and compassion and mudita use a lot of words. Again, some of you have talked about these in the one-on-ones. There are a lot of words. We've been repeating words for three and a half days, right? And those of you who've done mindfulness retreats, sometimes long, for the silence, the absence of words, right? Has anyone felt that? It's interesting, isn't it? And so, are these, what's going on here? Are, you know, are, we, are we just talking about like different worlds? Or we could say that the, the, you know, if you ask what's the temperature, the temperature of these heart practices is warm and the temperature, it seems, of the wisdom practices uh, is cool mindfulness, wisdom, it's kind of cool. Even the whole vision of Nibbana, the, the, the word literally is connected with the blowing out of, the, of a fire, of being cooler, so to speak. You know? And so, you know, and mindfulness, wisdom seem to take us away from all, you know, from all this preoccupation with words to see things in a different way. Um, we could say that the, the, these heart practices seem to be invested in goals. I wish this for you. I wish this for me. May I have these qualities. May you have these qualities. And then you come to the equanimity phrases. And the one that I use, for example, is no matter what I wish for, things are as, are as they are. It's a little bit like, go ahead and wish, kid. No matter what you wish for, things are as they are. <laughs> Right, anything that could seem to be diametrically opposed. So, I don't know if you were confused before the last five minutes, but <laughs> <laughs> but do you see how it could be confusing? Now, in my experience, they end up the same place, but it's a little bit like different ways up the mountain, different language, and actually. Uh, so the, the short response to that possible confusion is they end up at the same place where there's a unification of wisdom, mindfulness, 
and the kind heart. And there's in the mature dimensions of compassion and loving kindness and joy, we're beyond the ordinary sense of self. And that's, I'm just saying that as a kind of assertion, but I'll, I think in exploring equanimity, we'll be able to see some of the ways that that's the case and see some of the ways that wisdom and the heart practices or can be integrated. And equanimity plays a large role. Another way to give the response to that apparent quandary is to say that um, all four of these qualities need to be unified, much, much like that original quotation from Nayanapanakatara. They have to be unified or they're incomplete and not fully mature. In other words, the wisdom aspect and the heart aspect need each other. So we could talk ultimately about the wise heart, and probably even better, the wise embodied heart. And that I think that's what all of this is pointing to. Equanimity literally means balance. The word in the original language is upeka. Remember the quote from yesterday about heka upeka. And so it's upeka, uh, U-P-E-K-K-H-A. And it's, uh, it's an amazing quality. And Anna and I were talking earlier over supper, and I was saying that I, w- I have fallen in love with equanimity over the last years. Anna was saying, I've fallen in love with equanimity. And so, um, in what follows, I want to offer some of my love of equanimity. And I hope you have fallen in love, at least some with equanimity, by the end of the evening. It appears Uh, very often in the traditional teachings, in the teachings of the Buddha. And it always appears at the end of lists of qualities. I remember one teacher said, equanimity is actually very close to the sacred. It's a very deep quality. And so it appears, some of you know, in the teaching of the seven factors of awakening, We have mindfulness and energy, inquiry, joy or rapture, a different word than mudita. We have tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's the final member of that group. It's the last of the Brahmavihara. It's the last of the group called the paramis, which are the core virtues that we develop. It's also the last of the states of meditative absorption that are called the jhanas. The last one is connected with equanimity. So interesting, it's taken as a a very uh, mature state. We sometimes like to talk about equanimity as being like the wise grandmother who has seen everything and is not knocked around by everything but still cares and responds. It's a nice metaphor for equanimity. So there's a sense of balance of having seen things and yet there's still care and there's still responsiveness. It's It's a very beautiful quality. I think a lot of my inspiration for equanimity uh, came from my father, uh, Simon who died about about, uh, a little over, what would it be, uh, nine years ago, a little over nine years ago. And I think he had a lot of equanimity. He was able to be with a lot. He was, he grew up in uh, poverty, really. His parents were immigrants. He went through a lot. He enlisted in the uh, Army Air Force and went into World War II 
where he saw a lot of death. A lot of his friends died. He saw a lot there. After he came back, he wanted to go to medical school and he couldn't go to medical school because there were quotas for people of Jewish background. It's not always so well known. Those lasted until the early 60s. There were quotas like that. So he couldn't do what he most wanted to do. And I haven't heard him speak with a lot of bitterness. He developed psoriasis and seemed to have a lot of balance with it. He had um, scales all over his body and we would still go to the swimming pool. And he would, was just able to do that and not really care so much what people thought, apparently, as far as I know, even though some kids were sometimes scared. There were red scales all over his body. You know? And there was some kind of uh, balance there. When he was in his, um, probably about in his late 40s, he started going blind. It may have been from experiments that he did because he became a scientist and he had done experiments with the government, I think in the late 50s, and probably there was bad supervision of some of the chemicals they were working with and his eyes were affected. And he went, started going blind in his late 40s and was uh, uh, legally blind the last 25 years of his life. And he also developed, when he was in his later 50s, he developed cancer and was given two to four years to live. And he lived for 27 more years. And so there's a lot there, right? And I haven't mentioned some of that. And there seemed to be an equanimity, you know? And of course there were, as we'll see, there were near enemies and so forth, but there was a lot of equanimity. And I think there's something there that really has stayed with me and uh, energized my interest in equanimity because there was a lot of balance there with all this stuff that was happening, with all these things uh, that had occurred. And there wasn't a bitterness. And in fact, as he was blind and in those last years, his heart seemed to get bigger, as sometimes happens in those kind of situations. So one of the main qualities of equanimity is balance. There's an ability to be with different experiences and stay balanced. And to a large extent, this is a fruit of our practice. You know, as we practice more, we come up against challenging states. And a lot of what happens both in daily life practice and in retreats is that there's this interesting mix of insight, understanding, bliss, and distress. <laughs> and difficulties. <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> or difficulties and, you know, and I think, you know, for me, they were in my first years, they were kind of balanced 50-50, which kept me going, <laughs> you know. And, but there were retreats where, and where I had, I got to look at fear very closely, where I got to look at anger, self-judgment, sadness. And over time, when one has uh, the support like we have here, to look at these things, we learn something about them. And it's not that we don't get fear, but we're more like the mountain climber who has fear and doesn't react to the fear. The fear is there, but there's, not some, there's some balance with the fear, in other words. And then, so a lot of this uh, balance of equanimity comes from experience. It's like the, there's a line from Mark Twain um, which goes like this. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have that, we have that sense of balance. Uh, we have, we have a sense, there can be a sense of evenness. We can be with experience and not react too much to any one thing. In large part because we've 
we've, we've gone into it, we've looked at it. Some of my favorite expressions of uh, equanimity, particularly in the, on the quality of evenness, come from Japanese haiku. So do you want to hear a few of them? Here they are. This is from Basho. Some of you know the great haiku writer Basho from 18th century. And a lot of these haiku, at least the ones that I found, they're linked with the existence of fleas. And I haven't studied that time of Japan well enough to know, but my sense is their fleas were endemic because they appear in a lot of the haikus. Okay, so here's, now remember haikus are like 17 syllables in the original, which means they come and go quickly. So listen, you have to listen if your mind goes to yesterday or tomorrow, you'll miss it. Okay? Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. Okay, that's it. <laughs> okay, now why is that an equanimity haiku? Hmm? Yeah, it's, he's sleeping in the midst of it. Do you hear complaining? No. Just fleas, lies, the horse pissing near my pillow. Just matter-of-factly. That's how I interpret it as an equanimity haiku. Okay, another one. This is Isa. Isa lived in the uh, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, and uh, wrote a lot of haikus. And this is about his house. It also involves fleas. And I take this also to be equanimity haiku. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. <laughs> and one more equanimity haiku with fleas. Okay. This is where Isa is going off to uh, a beautiful place called Matsushima. And he says, now you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. <laughs> off we go. <laughs> so a lot of equanimity is keeping balance no matter what happens. And they're one of the uh, great teachings uh, that's very practical is the teaching called the teaching of the eight worldly winds, which, and some of you probably know this, sometimes called the eight worldly dharmas or the eight worldly conditions. And these are the eight, uh, what, the eight types of experiences which tend to knock us off balance. So anyone who practices with, eight, with equanimity practices with these qualities. And, and they come in pairs, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Right? And so if we're interested in equanimity, we want to keep track out for what happens when we have praise or blame. What happens when we have a story about us that makes us look bad, makes us look good. What happens when we have gain or loss? What happens with pleasure and pain? Let me see, I think I have a... A reading related to that. Let's see if I can find it. Oh yeah, this is this this is this is actually from the Dhammapada from the Buddha. It really tells about how all of us are going to get all of these winds coming at us. This is the Buddhist speaking. They find fault in one sitting silently. They find fault in one speaking much. They find fault in one speaking in moderation. <laughs> Get the idea. No one in this world is not found at fault. There has been, there is, there will be no person who is only criticized or only praised. It's part of the condition, right? And so we work with that. And we develop increasingly uh, an ability to be with all of those without getting knocked around. And some of the people I think we most admire in our lives 
are people who have that capacity to be with those winds. You know, many of the great figures of history, think of someone like Nelson Mandela, right? 27 years in prison, developed a tremendous equanimity, it seems. You know? And for Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, right? Who just stayed, people know her history, Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma, she was instrumental. Her father was uh, one of the founders of Burma after it was decolonized. And he was assassinated when she was very young. There's a beautiful film of her life. Uh, what's that called? Do you remember? Do you know that, the name of that? I forget. But there's, it's a beautiful, beautiful film of her life. And she came back to Burma. She had been away many years, right before the 1988 democracy movement, played an instrumental role, seemed to be a, a, about to be elected, and then the military junta cracked down, massacred thousands of people, put her, her under house arrest. She was the hope of the people of Burma. And she actually was practicing with a Burmese teacher named Upandita and was practicing, I don't, I imagine she was practicing metta, metta brahma-vihara. She was practicing these, and she was under house arrest. People were being tortured and killed. The government wanted her to leave the country, so she would just be not there anymore. She refused to leave. Her husband developed cancer. They did not permit him to come to Burma, and she knew that if she left, they wouldn't let her back. And in her mind, she had to stay there and keep the hopes of the people there. So her husband died without her seeing him in those last years. Very, very, uh, uh, very awful decision she had to make. And so there was something, some deep balance and equanimity which kept her going. And again, we can she's look to, still there. yeah, she's not in house arrest. No. She's been freed from house arrest and she's been instrumental in helping Burma shift in the last few years. Yeah. So we can study her life. There, there are a lot of what we're talking about is there. What is your name? Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. It's A-U-N-G-S-A-N. That's actually the name of her father. Su, which is S-U-U, and Chi, which I think is spelled K-Y-I. Yeah, look her up and see, see if you can find the film. There's some amazing scenes in that film, just amazing. Yeah. And so there's this, there's this steadiness. Another quality of equanimity is um, unshakability or steadiness that can just be with what's there and not be moved. And of course, re realistically, one's moved, but one can work it out. You know? and Aung San Suu Kyi was going through all sorts of things, but something in her was un unmovable. And it's the fruit of practice, it's the fruit of wisdom. It's part of equanimity. There's also an aspect of understanding. Remember the quotation, where Nainaponikatara said it's balanced, rooted in insight. That understanding is crucial to uh, equanimity. And it can really bring the wisdom aspect and link it with the heart. Because what we're going to find is that this equanimity to be mature has to bring these qualities of balance and evenness and unshakability and understanding and connect them with the heart. And that's what happens in the Brahmavihara. The understanding is often to see things with a long view. You know, I did a book uh, several years ago about the connection between spirituality and social action. And I interviewed about 15 uh, spiritual activists and studied the lives of a lot of others, like, like Aung San Suu Kyi. And I found over and over again people often said, we have to take a long view. We have to see the causes and conditions and take a very long view of things. So I know uh, one, one person I interviewed, uh, 
was uh, Dr. Arya Ratni from Sri Lanka, who founded an organization called Sarvodaya in 1958. It's actually the largest expression of Buddhist practice coming into the world. They have about 15,000 chapters in Sri Lanka where they connect Buddhist practice with uh, community uplift, basically. And they were able, after the tsunami, 2004, 2005, they had a, a, a stronger response than the government in terms of helping. And, and he was also instrumental in helping to end the civil war in Sri Lanka. He said, we have to have a 500-year plan. The roots of the problem go back 500 years. We have to see things with a long view. And a lot of the people I interviewed had that very long view. The poet Gary Snyder says it's very helpful to have a 5,000-year perspective. <laughs> and this, is, this is Joanna Macy. If we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. We are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule in every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We have that long, very long view. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes, or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen, the peerless defender of the rainforest or the conqueror of the evil empire. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us, that we're part of the story. So it's equanimity having that very long view Seeing causes and conditions, having understanding. Sometimes it's to have understanding of the people we're with. Longfellow wrote, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's heart, life in each person's life, sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. You know, and there's that French phrase, to understand is to forgive. And so understanding very crucial aspect of equanimity. And there can also be a sense of faith in equanimity that we, in a way, rest in being. I know sometimes in retreats, I've practiced with the sense of death being nearby. Can I, could I die in this moment? can be a very powerful practice to contemplate death as nearby. Could I die? Can I just be in the moment? Can I be with the faith to be with each moment? So equanimity has that faith which starts to move into this quality uh, of warmth. And one of the ways we can see that really clearly is by looking at what are called the near enemies or near opposites of, of equanimity. And these are the ways that equanimity typically doesn't involve the heart, doesn't involve that um, caring response. Traditionally, the near enemy or the near opposite of equanimity is uh, indifference. So there's not really caring. There's not the metta, there's not the compassion, there's not the joy present. It becomes a kind of cool balance, right? I'm balanced, but I don't really care. Or I have my private serenity, but I'm kind of disconnected. And when I was reflecting on equanimity over these last years, I got really excited because I started finding all these other near enemies. In the traditional text, they only talk about one. I found like 10. 
And you can see them, they probably would come to you very easily if you reflected some. So for example, another kind of distortion of uh, equanimity might be resignation, right? I'm kind of resigned and I'm really just gonna withdraw. And it can look like I'm really balanced and equanimous, but I'm not really. Another one might be complacency. It can look like equanimity. You know, I'm not easily rattled, but that's because I don't care so much. And as you hear these, you can hear how there's an absence of the metta or the compassion or the joy there. Another one might be privilege, you know. I live high on the hill. I'm balanced towards the affairs of the world. I know about them, but they don't affect me so much because I'm very disconnected and I don't care. So privilege can look like that, can't it? It can, we can think we're equanimous. We may even be Buddhist practitioners and not look at privilege and think we're equanimous. It's sort of the blind spot for many of us you know, that we actually are a little disconnected. We actually might be numb and think we're equanimous. Or we might be in denial of what's happening and think we're equanimous. You get the sense, right? There are a lot of these ways and they're really, uh, they really are about the absence of the heart being present. There's a, there's a beautiful poem by uh, Gary Snyder which brings out this way that we can hide in wisdom and equanimity disconnected from the heart. And it, he's going to, he got, he wrote this poem in after, after 9-11. And I think, I think you may remember that before 9-11, the Taliban blew up Buddhas in a place called Bamiyan. And they blew up the Buddhas. And a lot of people, including Buddhists, were upset about this. And naturally enough, some people wrote and said, hey, don't you believe in impermanence? Why are you upset? You know, what's going on? Shouldn't you just be equanimous and just, okay, things arise, things pass away, Buddha statues, doesn't matter. And he responded to this because he thought there was a basic misunderstanding, which is very, very similar to those near enemies. And he actually will quote Isa in his response. It's a very brief response. He's going to quote Isa, who wrote a poem after his daughter died, very young. And the poem was referring to a key Mahayana Buddhist text that was very central in Japan called the Diamond Sutra. Some of you know that. And in the, in the Diamond Sutra, there are lines about life being like a dewdrop at dawn. And you'll hear that reference in the poem. So someone wrote a letter to him saying, Gary, yeah, Bamayan, well, yes, but the manifest dharma is intrasamsaric and will decay. Best regards are. <laughs> and he responded, Ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku, this is the haiku by Isa, goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world and yet, and yet, and Snyder says, and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. The and yet is about his daughter. It's a dewdrop world and there's something else. This is really calling for this connection of the wisdom with the heart. And so as we practice, and I think as we practice these together, like I've been saying a lot, they mingle, they connect. 
they, we find ways to bridge these heart practices and the wisdom practices. Suzuki Roshi, things are perfect as they are. They could also use some improvement. <laughs> and this is where actually equanimity is ultimately responsive and acts. It's not just a quality of standing back, but there's that responsiveness which is called forth by metta and compassion especially. Compassion has both this receptive quality which we've been exploring here and the active helping. Nisargadatta, the great uh, non-dual sage, says, love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So we can't always conceptually work out how all this comes together. You getting that sense? And maybe the poetry does it better, her lines like that. But there is this way they come together, the way these qualities come together. This is a, here's a Zen way of framing it. This is from Robert Aitken Roshi. He wrote a book called Zen Master Raven, kind of inspired by native traditions. And he had a character named Al who asked, who, who asked Brown Bear this question. What is right view? Which is pointing to wisdom. Brown Bear responds, we're in it together and we don't have much time. <laughs> Another version of this, a little different. Okay, so let me finish with another way of pointing to that balance. And this comes from Nayana Panikatera, from that, from that essay on uh, the four Brahmavihara. This is a nice way to, to end. It really is pointing to how they, these qualities interpenetrate each other, interfuse with each other. And we don't have to think it out, but as long as we're practicing all of them, they will integrate themselves. And as long as we look out for the near enemies, right? But we can see how they, they are important together. Here's Nayanapanakatera. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime abodes. It includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade equanimity. Metta imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached maturity, Compassion urges it to enter again and again the world in order to be able to stand this, the test, strengthening itself. Mudita, her sympathetic joy, gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the Buddha. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three. It gives to metta an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair, which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, <clears throat> equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. In these and other ways, equanimity may be said to be the crown and culmination of the other three. And so we practice, we practice with all of them. We invite their interpenetration. We look often and ask, does my metta have the other qualities? <coughs> Is my metta connected with compassion? Is my compassion 
connected with joy so I avoid burnout? Is my joy connected with compassion so I don't simply have a selfish joy? Are these all guided by wisdom? Is my equanimity connected with compassion so that I really care and want to help? Is my equanimity connected with joy to give it that uh, full heartfulness? And so we work to connect these by doing the very practices we're doing. I think the connection occurs naturally and looking out for the possible distortions. That's the work of purification that we talk about. We look out for that, we practice, we make the connections. And I think in doing so, we heal ourselves. And I think we also go a very long way to healing our culture. Because as I mentioned, this disconnection of the heart and wisdom is part of what's ill with our culture. There are many things that are not ill, but there are many things that are. And I think exactly what we're doing here leads to both personal and cultural healing. And it benefits ultimately all beings. So thank you so much. So we'll be practicing equanimity uh, tomorrow morning. And meanwhile, we can let the first three keep on mingling, maybe bringing in the flavor of wisdom as we practice. And we'll come back for our chanting. I think we're going to have a little bit longer chanting tonight. By longer, I mean like a few minutes longer. So, okay. so. Thank you again for your kind attention and we'll continue at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.